So we're continuing this morning in our, our series here in the Ten Commandments and um, made it all the way to the Eighth Commandment this morning, believe it or not. We just got a couple weeks, uh, two or three weeks left in this series. We'll finish this up on August the 5th, actually, um, as we have our baptism service that day. And, um, so we jump in today, Eighth Commandment, uh, very simply, Thou shalt not steal, or as many of our modern translations say, just simply do not Steal, And so I've just simply entitled today's uh, message, Stop Thief. And this is uh, encouragement for us once again, both to see uh, the breadth and the depth of this commandment. It would be easy for us. This is one kind of like the commandment, Thou shalt not murder. It would be easy for us to simply kind of check off the box and go, Well, I haven't killed anybody lately. Well, I haven't stolen anything lately, so I'm good. And yet I hope that you'll, you'll see today as we walk through this Eighth Commandment and see some more from the Scriptures that kind of flesh this thing out, uh, that all of us are guilty before a holy God in breaking the Eighth Commandment in one way or another. And we need the grace of Christ to redeem us, restore us, and make us whole anew again. So let's jump right in this morning. If you want to open to the book of Genesis chapter 1, we're going to kind of wake, make our way through a series of scriptures that are connected to this command we find in Exodus 20.15, this commandment, thou shalt not steal. Before we jump into Genesis chapter 1, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church this morning. Lord, we make the confession this morning that everything belongs to you. You are the creator of all things. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You have given us life and breath and every good thing. There is nothing that exists that is not yours. And we include ourselves in that equation. Lord, help us to see this morning that this Eighth Commandment has application for all of us. That no matter how righteous we might think that we have been, our righteousness is before you but filthy rags. We need a greater righteousness that is only found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to see it and to lay hold of it by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with some foundational things this morning. In fact, we're going to get down to the brass tacks with some things that you may be thinking, man, uh, this sounds like we're going back to preschool, Sunday school class this morning, and I, and I think we need to do that at times. We need to be reminded of some of the most basic things as we would seek to look at our world through what I would call a Christian world view. There's, there's two ways that we can approach Christianity, that we, we see Christianity being approached in our culture today. There's one way that would seek to redefine Christianity based upon the viewpoint of this world. There would be those who would literally seek to tear pages out of Scripture in an effort to form a Christianity that would be more palatable to the world in which we live. We want to run away from that with all of our might. Instead... 
Now, not to judge the Scriptures by the viewpoint of the world, but to judge the world by the viewpoint of the Scriptures. To put on our biblical glasses and begin to see our world through a God-centered perspective, not a man-centered perspective that is so prevalent in this culture in which we are living, but a God-centered perspective. And it'll change the way you do everything, including your own personal possessions that we're going to talk a lot about today. So let's start with this just most basic idea that God, the God of the Bible, is the giver of all good gifts. Just take that in for a moment. Every good thing that you have in your life, and you may feel like coming in today, I don't have much that's good, but you have life. Your lungs are continuing to inflate with air. Your heart is continuing to beat within your chest, even if it's irregularly. Your brain waves are continuing to float through your mind. You have been given this gift of life. And we're talking about some of the other gifts of God. But just if we were just to stop right there and recognize that our good Father, the creator of all things, the God of all that exists, that He has given us life, that ought to spur us on in what we are talking about today. But there's more. There's so so much more. But let's look at Genesis chapter 1. So we go back to the beginning, which where we've been doing week by week in this series, understanding that the commandments didn't find their start in Exodus chapter 20. They really find their start in the early chapters of Genesis. From the very beginning, God is demonstrating His character through His creation, just as He seeks to demonstrate His character through these commandments, these ten words. So Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women, both made in the image of God. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, look, pay attention. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. We're going to talk about some of the things, some of the basic things that God has provided for us right here in this passage in a minute. But, but before we get there, here's what I want us to remember. We've been saying in this, in this series that the commandments of God reveal the character of God. That's what God is doing in these commandments. He's not just giving us a list of do's and don'ts just because he's uh, some mean overlord ruler that wants to ruin all of our fun. No, he is trying to put on display for us his character. And in doing so, he is prohibiting a number of things. Most of these commandments are given in the form of thou shalt not or don't do this, don't do that. And some people just get caught up there and never see beyond that. But I want you to see beyond it and recognize that the prohibitions of God reveal the fact that God prizes some things. The fact that God says stop or don't to some things is indicating that God is wanting to lead us into some things that are better. Let me give you a for instance. At our house... The kids aren't po supposed to play close to the road. We live right on this main highway that goes to Hardensburg, and we don't want the kids playing out close to the road. Why? Because it's dangerous. 
because we know if you play close to the road, you're probably eventually going to think you can play in the road or across the road and bad things could happen. So they aren't supposed to play uh, close to the road. But what they are intended to do is we've got an entire backyard and side yards that are free for them to roam. And they even sometimes roam into the neighbor's yard, which they're really not supposed to do, but they do at times. And we, but we want to keep them away from the road, but at the same time, we're wanting to point them toward, here's a great place to play. You see, I think that's what I think our Heavenly Father is doing in these commandments. Is he's not just saying, stop, don't, stay away. He's saying, I've got something better for you. Let me show you what will provide you with flourishing and joy and happiness. And so let's look at some of those things. So why then does God prohibit stealing? Taking that which does not belong to you. That's my definition of stealing this morning. Real complicated. Why is God so worked up? about stealing. When he, we just talked about last week, uh, last week, adultery. That seems bigger. Murder seems bigger. So many of the other commandments seem bigger than this one. Why is God so worked up about stealing, theft, taking that which does not belong to us? Here's what I think the Bible teaches. God hates stealing because ultimately stealing slanders God's sovereignty. We've already said God is the giver of all good things. Every good thing that we have in our lives is a gift from our Heavenly Father. Even if you don't recognize Him as God, your very life and breath is given to you as a gift of your Creator. Whether you recognize Him in that or not, it is truth. And so when we think about taking that which does not belong to us, Ultimately, what we are doing in that moment, whether it's a three-cent piece of gum in the, in the grocery store or whether it's something much larger and more valuable, what we are saying in that moment when we take that which does not belong to us or even harbor in our hearts the desire to do so. See, that's where Jesus goes in Matthew chapter 6. As he says, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. Don't store up all your treasures on the earth. In other words, don't let your heart get so connected to stuff here in this world that you get led away from your eternal reward. But God is so worked up about this issue of stealing because ultimately he's sovereign over it all. He created it all, and He distributes it all as He sees fit. Now, you may wish that He distributed more into your life, but He has given you exactly what you need at this time. And you may deny that, and yet the Bible continually leads us back to characters like Job, who, having had everything, loses everything in the matter of a 24-hour period. And Job's response is, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Which sounds like utter lunacy, unless you believe that God is the giver of all good things, has authority over everything that exists, wants good things for His children, and will be a faithful provider at every turn. Unless this is the God that you know, you will reject what we're going to look at this morning. So what has God given? What good gifts? Let's just jump back to Genesis 1 there for a moment. First of all, in Genesis 1.27, God gave people. God created us in His image. 
He created us and gave us life, breathed breath into our lungs. And didn't just make us in any old way, made us in His image to represent Him in the creation. There are things unique about us as human beings that He did not give to any other part of His creation. He gave us an intelligence that goes beyond any other uh, being on the, on the planet. He, he gave us the ability to create. He gave us a relational quality that does not exist among the animals. We could go on and on with these things, but at the end of the day, God created us as people. He gave us life. And what a gift that is. Secondly, Genesis 1.28, then God gave purpose. You shall have dominion. Now when you think about dominion here, I, I want to differentiate here between ownership and stewardship. I think the Bible is teaching here that our dominion over the earth, what God has given us in that dominion over the earth, is much more an issue of stewardship than it is of ownership. Because here's, what, here's the deal. If I think I own something, there's something in my sinful heart that gives me the idea that I might have the right to abuse said thing. But that's not what God is doing. This is what God does. If we look over in Luke 19, and Jesus gives the parable of the talents. He has entrusted to us. If you're a parent in this room, I want you to understand this morning, we don't own our children. God has entrusted them to us. When you think about your bank account, however big or however tiny it might be, I want you to understand you don't own that. God has entrusted it to you. So this will radically change the way that you deal with your earthly possessions. It will radically change. First of all, it'll change because you'll recognize not being the owner, your heart doesn't have to get so tied up in everything. You can be freed up. From the care of worldly possessions. You can be freed up from the love of money, which the Bible says is the root of all sorts of evil. You can be freed up when you recognize it all belongs to Him. That doesn't mean we have no responsibility. It means we have great responsibility, but ultimately it's all His. And we just get the privilege of stewarding that which God has entrusted to us. It'll change the way you do your finances, it'll change the way you regard your possessions. But thirdly, this morning, God gave, gave us His people. He gave us purpose, and He gave us provisions. Just imagine the Lord taking Adam and Eve up on a hillside and saying, look, look as far as you can see. See all these beautiful trees, all these different kinds of fruit all over the world, not just here in the garden, but all of this that you can see, I'm giving it all to you. It's all yours. I mean, what a gracious father. It's like, it's like a, a dad taking his kid in to Toys R Us and saying, it's all yours. It's every kid's dream, right? That's what God is doing here in Genesis chapter 1. He's saying, I, I want you to know it's all yours. I'm entrusting it all to you. You can enjoy all of it. But there's one tree. You go to Genesis chapter 2, and God says, there's one tree that I'm going to reserve for myself. It's in the middle of the garden, and I just want you to stay away from this one tree. It's my only request. You can have it all. You can have it all, but I want you to stay away from this one tree because when you eat the fruit of that tree, understand, I'm not trying to keep you from something except for I'm trying to keep you from death. 
And so God says, if you eat of the fruit of that one tree, death's going to come. Sin's going to enter the world and death comes with it. And I don't want that for you. I'm prohibiting this one tree because I prize my relationship with you. I prize your holiness. I prize what we have together here in this garden. But you see, mankind didn't prize what God prizes. That's what sin means. Sin means I don't prize what God prizes. I prize my own way rather than His. I prize my own priorities rather than His. James 1.17, great verse for us to commit to memory, by the way. Every good gift, every perfect, mature, complete gift is from above. Every good thing you have comes from Him. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We say He is the unchanging God. When we say that, I don't want you to hear us saying that like God is some stoic God who's unfeeling and, and, and unaffected by our situation. That's not what we're saying. God is radically affected by what our sin has wrought in this world. But He is unchanging in His character. He is unchanging in His pursuit of us, those who have rebelled against Him in our sin. He is unchanging in His nature, who He is as God. And I want you to understand this morning, the only security that you will have in this life is to know the unchanging God and to know that He is unchanging. Because the moment He changes, the moment the character of God is altered, we are without hope. And there is no salvation for us. Our salvation is grounded in the character of this God who created all things and desires good things for His children and pursues us in love and rescues us from our rebellion against Him. But how do people respond to this good God? Go to Genesis chapter 3, flip over maybe another page or two in your Bible and you come to Genesis 3 and you see... There, even in the beginning, people began to practice poaching others' possessions. We began to desire that which did not belong to us, and not just to desire it, but to go after it and to take it. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, by the way, Bob showed us last week, that's where the sin began. The desire was where the sin took root, not just the action. And sin always begins in the heart before it's carried out in the hands. When she saw there was a delight to the eyes, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. At the heart, the very first sin was one of theft, was it not? It began with a desire in the heart for that which did not belong to her, that which God had reserved for himself. And then she took and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. The implication is Adam is sitting back going, hmm, let's see how this works out with Eve. God told us not to eat of that tree lest we die. The implication is Adam sitting back going, well, if she don't die, maybe I'll try some. It's evil, right? Who was with her and he ate. They took that which did not belong to them and the result was death came into the world. Sin and death came in and stole from God's good creation. Didn't end there. Other Old Testament thieves include guys like Jacob and Achan. Jacob's name means deceiver. 
And he spent his life, his early part of his life, deceiving his own family and taking that which did not belong to him. He tricked his older brother into selling away his birthright for a bowl of soup on one occasion. On another occasion, he dressed up like his older brother and went in and tricked his own blind father into giving him the blessing rather than his older brother Esau. He made a living of tricking people out of their stuff. And he paid dearly for it until he came to know the one true and living God. Until he came to know God one night and saw God in all of his glory and wrestled with God during the night and was left with a limp as a result of that wrestling which reminded him continually that this God, he is the owner of it all. Jacob, you don't have anything on this God. You're not going to get anything over on him. He knows you fully. And in those moments, God gave Jacob, a new name that we know as Israel. He redeemed Jacob. Not so much with Achan, though. If you go over to Joshua chapter 7, early chapters of Joshua, God is, is granting and he is, is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham, I'm going to bring a huge amount of descendants from you. Your people are going to be my people. They're going to be called by my name. And I'm going to give you a land. You've been a nomad all your life, Abraham, going from place to place. And I'm going to give you a place of your own. And he took him up on a mountain and said, look, as far as your eyes can see, this is all going to belong to your descendants. And generations later, God begins to fulfill that promise through Moses as Moses brings the people of Israel out of the nation of Egypt and begins to lead them toward that promised land that God had guaranteed would be theirs. And as they get to the border, now Joshua is in control. Moses is passed on and Joshua is in control. And as they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land, God says, I've got a, a stipulation here. The first city you're going to come to is the city of Jericho. And it's well fortified. Hey, you're, you're, you're going to think there's no way we can take this city. This is a metropolis, and it's well guarded. But I'm going to give you this city. And here's what I'm asking. When I give you the city, I want you to give it back to me. Don't keep anything from Jericho in your possession. I want you to give it all back to me. You can read about this in the book of Joshua. I want you to give it all back to me, God said, just this one city. Now, you're going to go to other cities. There's going to be multiple other cities that you're going to go and you're going to take, and you can keep all the spoils for yourself in every other city. But this first city, the city of Jericho, I want you to set everything aside as an act of worship unto me. But there was this dude named Achan who didn't follow God's orders very well. As they were given the city of Jericho, and if you know the story, it was a miraculous victory. As they were given the city of Jericho, Achan spied a few things there in a particular household that he really desired for himself. Again, sin always starts with a desire. And he took those things, little gold, little silver, nice robe, and he hid them underneath his bed in his tent. And he went on about his business. And the next battle that they were going to have, the Israelites were going uh, against the people in a little no-name town, a little place called Ai, A-I. It was, even the name was little. It was a little no, nowhere place. And, and it was so little and insignificant that Joshua said, there's no reason to even send the whole army against Ai. I mean, God just gave us Jericho. And now we're going against this little no-name place. He just sent a little battalion of troops to go and take over the city of Ai. And they were completely and utterly defeated. And 38 men lost their lives at Ai. 
and, and Joshua, the leader of Israel, was completely downstruck. God, what's the deal? I mean, you just gave us Jericho, and now we get beaten by the people of Ai? I mean, let me, let me give you an illustration here. This would be like a basketball team going against the University of Louisville and just beating them down. I mean, 98 to 60 is the final score of this game. And then the next week, that same exact team that beat Louisville 98 to 60 goes against the Breckenridge County Bearcats. And the Breckenridge County Bearcats chew them up and spit them out in the same way they had just done Louisville. That's what we're talking about here in what happens in those early chapters of Joshua. And Joshua is going, God, what's the deal? You gave us Jericho, and then we get beaten by I? doesn't make any sense. And God shows Joshua there was something Joshua wasn't seeing. There were some goods from Jericho that were hiding in Achan's tent, and through a series of things, God reveals that to his people. And here was the lesson, first of all, Sin, no matter how small it may seem, always produces death. Thirty-eight men lost their lives because Achan took what did not belong to him. And subsequently, Achan and his entire family lost their lives because of his disobedience. We may think that theft is a small thing. It is not in the eyes of a sovereign God. Doesn't get much better in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see guys like Judas and Ananias. Judas, one of the twelve, and in John chapter 12, it, it says of Judas, the disciple of Christ, that, that he liked to take from the money bag, the, the common purse that the disciples had as they were ministering side by side with Jesus, that he would take a little bit out for his own purposes. He was a thief. And then we go over to Acts chapter 5. Even in the early church, we find thieves like Ananias and Sapphira, who was selling a piece of property, claimed to bring the fullness of their proceeds to the church as an offering, but in truth, they kept back a portion for themselves. They lied about their offering, and in result, they died in the midst of the offering and were carried out. I mean, imagine church that Sunday. You're dragging dead bodies out after the offering. Things start to get real, real in church at that point. What we're seeing is God takes these things very seriously. This is no small matter to the living God. Malachi chapter 3, kind of an interaction between God and Israel happening in Malachi chapter 3. And God asks, will man rob God? Is that even possible? I mean, how do you take from God? Yet you are robbing me, God says. But you say, Israel, you say, how have we robbed you? The implication is, how could we rob you? You own it all already. How could we possibly rob you? You're robbing me in your tithes and contributions. I've asked you to set aside a portion of what I've entrusted you as an act of worship unto me, and you've refused to do that. It's as if we push God off the throne denying His sovereignty and thinking we know better, and we reap the consequences. 
By the way, after the book of Malachi, you have 400 years. In your Bible, there's a little piece of paper between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It represents 400 years of silence on God's part. From Malachi to John the Baptist, you have 400 years of silence on God's part, at least in part because of their disobedience here. If you don't think that God takes the use of our personal finances seriously, go back and read the Scriptures. Where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be also. And I need you to understand, church, God cares very little about your checkbook. He cares very greatly about your heart. You want to see the heart of a person? I've said this for years. You want to see the heart of a person? Look at their calendar. Look at their checkbook. Where do they spend their time? How do they spend their money? That'll show you what's in your heart. You want to know, how do I examine my own heart? Look in those two areas. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? These are two of the greatest resources that God has given, and they both reveal the heart with which we are living. So what do we do? I mean, if we stop at Malachi chapter 3, I hope by now you can recognize that whether it's in our hearts or by our hands, all of us are guilty of theft. Our greatest theft has been stealing from the glory that deserves, that's only deserving of the one true and living God. But all of us are guilty of breaking this eighth commandment. And so what, what must we do? Once again, we come running back to the cross. We come running back to Christ and we see Christ there, the one who came to consecrate the crooked, the one who came to take the place of thieves. I mean, think back to what Jesus is doing there at the cross and what is taking place there at the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the thief, referring to Satan, the thief, he comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. He is a liar and a murderer and a thief. But I came, Jesus said, that they may have life and have it in abundance. Echoing the goodness of our great God and our heavenly Father who desires to give us so many good gifts. Jesus said, I came to give you life in abundance. Not just a little bit of life, but in the overflow. I want you to have joy, not just a little bit, but in the overflow. But there's a reason why I want to give you these good gifts, and we're going to come to that before we finish. But before we get there, I want you to see this. Be reminded of the cross. Be reminded that Jesus himself, he was crucified between two thieves. Look at the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, and they record the fact that Jesus hung there between two thieves. And then the book of Luke fleshes that out a little bit more. Listen to the story of these two thieves. One of those thieves, one of those criminals who was hanging there railed at him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You hear the sarcasm there? But the other rebuked him and said, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserve this. We deserve this fate, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is hope for thieves. But it's only found in Jesus Christ. There is hope for us. But what is that hope and what is the remedy? So here's what I think we do. I think we come to places like the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, and we think the remedy is just stop stealing. For those who would, who would struggle uh, with cussing, with using your tongue in improper ways, we think that the remedy is just stop cussing. For those who would have a wandering eye and would wrestle with uh, adultery and lust, we think in our human understanding that the solution is just stop doing that, right? In fact, so many of us, we, we find ourselves parenting in that way. Our kids are doing something we don't, want, we don't want them to do, and we just simply say, stop that. But the Bible goes a step farther. The Bible shows us something about our good God, our Heavenly Father, that is so much deeper, and I want you to see it. You see, the, the remedy for stealing is not just stopping. It's so much better than that. The remedy for our greedy grasping is this grace of glad-hearted generosity. It gets real deep real fast here. And I hope you'll hang on just for a few minutes this morning. So it's not just stop stealing it's replacing that with what rides so near and dear to the heart of our God. This glad-hearted generosity. We see it in 2 Corinthians 9-7 as, as Paul is preparing to take an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He, he writes to the Corinthians and says, Each one of you, each one of you must decide, must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. I love that. Paul says, you must give, but not under compulsion. <laughs> it seems like he's talking to both sides of his mouth until you get to the last phrase. Because God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, God loves a hilarious giver. God loves the idea of us passing the offering basket and chuckles moving down the row as we contemplate how hilarious it is that is his children we get to give to God as an act of worship that God has no need of our offerings God has no need of our tithes there is nothing that we would be able to contribute to this God who has power over all things, and yet He beckons us to give, and we can give hilariously. We can give cheerfully, recognizing that it's all His to begin with. It's a hilarious act, and yet it's so meaningful because the Father has given it meaning. And so in Ephesians 4, I think this draws us to a close this morning. Let the thief then no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, and then notice the purpose, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Take that in. There's three steps there. Stop stealing. That's the first step, right? 
Stop stealing is the first step. But notice how he follows it up. Some would say, yeah, stop stealing, get a job. That is step two, by the way. It's right there in the text. You can read it. Stop stealing, get a job. But see, here's what our world says. Our world agrees with stop stealing and get a job, but their purpose is completely different. The world says stop stealing, get a job so you can provide for your own self. Quit taking everybody else's stuff. Quit, quit mooching off the welfare system. Quit taking advantage of those uh, who, who have generosity in their hearts. Stop stealing. Get a job so you can provide for yourself. Is that what the scriptures say? No. This is where it gets so good. Ephesians 4.28 saying stop stealing and get a job so that then you will have the ability to live out generosity toward others. Doesn't it show you the heart of God here? He won't even allow us to become inwardly focused in our giving, in our working, in our gathering. God says, yeah, go gather more so you can give more. Go after that promotion so you can help more people. Do you see it? It's so much deeper than where we would leave it. We would love to leave off the so that or change it up to our own purposes. But God says, no, I'm giving you more so you'll have more to give. I think one of the ways that works out in our lives is this. God begins to open our hearts and minds and our eyes to see the needs around us. See, until you begin to see the legitimate needs that exist around you, you will never live out a heart of generosity. It was because God saw our desperate need that he gave his one and only son to pay the penalty for our sin at the cross so that we could be redeemed and rescued and restored to a right relationship with him. You see, God saw our need. And he acted. So the first thing we have to do is we have to pray, God, show me the need.